I end up encountering the same thing almost every Easter. And that is my lack of imagination. I really can get so far thinking about it, but really no farther. I can squint my eyes and still not see anything close to what God means by the resurrection or the kingdom of heaven or anything like that. I do my best, but I just can't get there. You might be like me where you can go so far and no farther and you just bump up against the limits of your imagination. I, this happened in a different way. The other night I was watching the um, NCAA championship with my granddaughter and she knew that it was uh, my birthday today. Today's my birthday. Not the main thing for today, but it's a thing today, okay? Um, but she knew it was coming. So nobody else was there. For, we had a quiet moment. She just said, Grandpa, how old are you? Now, I would never do this with an adult. But I said, how old do you think I am? And it was, it was beautiful. I saw her little eyes doing the calculations, right? This is how old Daddy is. She says, 48. After I expressed my gratitude... Uh, I said, do you want to know how old I really am? She said, yeah. I said, really? I'm 61. She, her eyes just got big, and she leaned back. She grabbed her belly, really, honestly, and chortled. Ah! That means you'll be 62 on your birthday. And I learned something from that little experience. That when you, think, when you think 10 years old, a person who's 10 years old is old, you'll never make it to 62. I kind of knew that. That's why I told her, oh yeah, why don't you guess? Because I knew that there was some kind of ceiling there past which her numbers would not go. So I would be younger than I actually am. And the same is really true when we think about the resurrection. We can go so far and no farther, really. We can get some kind of number, some kind of estimation of what a resurrection is like, but we really can't imagine it. What we're going to see today from the Scripture is when Jesus brought His disciples up on a mountain to expand their imagination. We're not the only ones, though. I mean, each one of you probably thought, yeah, maybe I have a little bit of a problem. But our entire culture, our entire world has this kind of imagination problem. Because we're unable to imagine eternity or spiritual reality or really anything beyond what our eyes can see. In his book, Our Secular Age, Colin Hansen describes what he calls allegories of transcendence. 
Now that's just a mouthful to say there is really no way that you will understand what you can't see. You will never really comprehend eternity. You need some sort of comparison, some sort of thing to whet your appetite for the eternal. And so, we go to concerts in the hope of getting a taste of the beauty that will transport us beyond our day-to-day. We look for a taste of transcendence in the perfect meal or the most intimate sex or the most exhilarating experience with drugs or sports or danger. We go hiking. And we look for scenery that will open the window into heaven. We spend our lives really on the search for eternity. But we wouldn't recognize it if we bumped into it. you know that? And I want, you to, I want you to spend a moment thinking about that because we so desperately long for there to be something more to this life and to this world than we see or taste or touch or feel. And we so much long for it that if the resurrection were not true, we would at least wish that it were. In the text we're going to look at this morning, Jesus gives His disciples a glimpse into eternity and into transcendence, and they, like us, don't really know what to do with it. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 17. You'll notice Matthew chapter 17 isn't at the end. Okay, The resurrection is the last thing, and we're not at the end, so this isn't exactly a resurrection message. It might be the weirdest resurrection message you ever listened to. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. So let's begin in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents for you. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. I told you this would be weird. Jesus gives us here, and He gives Peter and James and John and us this preview of kingdom life. This sort of trailer of coming attractions so that we can look for it and then look forward beyond it to something more. Jesus took them up the mountain to expand their imagination. 
by revealing Himself in this new and unusual way. And so I want you to look at the text because there it does connect the dots for us a little bit anyway. And I'm going to start at the, at the end, at verse 9. So if you look at verse 9, it says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one what you have seen, literally, what you have seen until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so the thing's all over. Jesus said, time out, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Now, why would Jesus want them to keep a lid on it? Why would, I mean, this is really the most spectacular thing anybody's ever seen. And they're not supposed to tell anyone. Why not? Well, I think there are two reasons for it. And uh, it's important to start with those reasons, I think. The first is that this experience or this vision, whatever they've seen here, will only make sense after the resurrection. It only will, only then will people be able to figure out what is happening here once they have experienced the resurrection. You might say that this is the resurrection in beta version. This is the, the first sort of peek at what the resurrection will be like. The glory and the otherworldly feel of this moment gives us a peek, gave them a peek behind the curtain that the resurrection opens up for good. And once it's open, then this vision will make sense. And that's why Jesus said, wait, the other reason, and it's related, the other reason that Jesus said that they should wait has to do, if you have been reading along in Matthew, you'll remember that over and over and over, people had been misunderstanding Jesus. They had, been, they, they had had an idea what a Messiah uh, should do or what it would be like, but it wasn't the right idea. And so if Jesus let everybody just talk about it freely, it would uh, entrench people in their commitments to the wrong ideas. And so Jesus said, let's not talk about it until you can see for real what it does mean for me to be the Messiah, what it does mean for me to be the Savior, what it does mean to have a kingdom of God. Let's wait until then. Then you can talk about it all you want. So wait till after the resurrection. And I think that's important because it's very easy for us, and if you do it, you're not the only one, I'm sure, but it's very easy for us to make Jesus into somebody that we want Him to be. We really believe in a Jesus of our own making a lot of times instead of Jesus as He is. And here we're going to see this picture of Jesus as He is and we're going to have to come to grips with that. Because Jesus cannot merely be a good moral teacher even though our world needs moral teaching. He cannot simply be the man upstairs who helps you get a job. He may help you get a job, but he's more than that. 
He's the resurrected Savior and the Son of God. And the un- He is unique in the history of the world. And so we have to deal with Jesus as He reveals Himself to be. Years later, um, Peter, who was one of the ones up on the mountain, of course, he wrote about what he saw. And he said this in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's takeaway, Peter's takeaway from this experience on the mountain is that I can't cleverly devise a myth. I can't make up Jesus uh, like I'd like him to be any longer. I have to deal with Jesus as is. So that's why Jesus said, why don't you wait? And they were to wait for the resurrection. In other words, there was a very clear line between this experience and the resurrection of Jesus. Clear enough that once there was a resurrection, then it would make sense of what we're going to look at the rest of the morning. So what does this peek into this kingdom life for the, the, the behind the veil? What does that tell us? Mostly, it tells us who Jesus is. Really, this is all constructed in a way that the language itself, apart from how spectacular everything is, the language itself just says Jesus is unique. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Come to humanity. What are you going to do with Him? So look back at the top in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. In sum, God has visited humanity in the person of Jesus. The appearance that Jesus had tells us He is more, shall I say, than normal. But we'll get to that in just a second. Look down at the text. There there are a few things I want to make sure that you notice. One one is a little detail about six days. There are six days. Now why would He throw in six days? Why would He anchor it in a particular day? Because it really happened on a particular day. Okay, I mean, this is so fantastical that some people say, well, he made that up to make a point. Okay, he didn't make it up to make a point. He told us exactly when it happened. Six days after Jesus said, you are the, or after Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It happened six days after he said, take up your cross and follow me. If he was going to fabricate this as a myth, it wouldn't have had an exact day when it happened. 
He took them then up to a high mountain. Another detail that we enjoy more than most, but we miss it more than most. Because we live in the Northwest. And we love the high mountains. That's one of our favorite things about the Northwest. Um, not so much in uh, the land of Israel. Because they didn't go hiking for recreation. Think about it. When you can drive to the trailhead and walk on a nice prepared trail, that's a different experience all entirely than if you have to go hiking to get to the trailhead. And then instead of hiking to get the trailhead flat, you have to go uphill. Why would you do that? And it doesn't go anywhere. They didn't go hiking for recreation. In their minds, the mountains were the domains of the gods. So, a first century person reading, reading the account that Matthew is writing, he reads this and he says, goes to a high mountain, he would say, something up there is going to happen about God. And it's a high mountain, not just any mountain. And you think about this, all throughout the Old Testament, if, if you read Old Testament, there's this unusual uh, phrase that recurs, and it talks about the kings who didn't tear down the high places. There were high places, but he didn't take them down, or this good king did take them down. You're thinking, what's the deal with the high places? What's the difference between a high place and a low place? The high places were where they worshipped the gods. Because... The mountains were the domains of the gods. And so Jesus took them as a signal to the disciples, to the rest of the world, and to the spiritual powers of the day. One author says this. He said, the meaning is transparent. Jesus was saying, I'm putting the hostile powers of the unseen world on notice. I have come to earth to take back what is mine. The kingdom of God is at hand. And of course, that's what Jesus had been saying all along in His ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now He's acting in a way that says, yes, in fact, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here it is. Just Let me just show it to you real quick. Look and see. And then it says, Jesus was transfigured. Now, he had a look. He had a look like nobody you've ever seen. I mean, to, in some respect, I'm, I'm talking about transfiguration, I know, on Resurrection Sunday, and several of you look a little nicer than normal. I mean, Taylor's wearing a suit and tie. I mean, he's been transfigured to a degree, right? Jesus, however, is not wearing any kind of suit and tie, or anything you'd see anybody else wear. His face is shining. His clothes are um, um, beaming white. And they didn't know what to make of Jesus. The word that's trans translated transfigured here is the word metamorphosis, that we get metamorphosis from, which is, of course, if you remember from your uh, grade school biology, when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, there is a metamorphosis, and it comes out a butterfly. And here, it's almost the same thing, really. 
that Jesus lives on earth and then through his death and burial and resurrection is metamorphosized and comes out different, right? And he gives them this glimpse that that this is going to happen. His appearance is changed so that we see what his appearance will one day be like. It is the preview, you might say, of coming attractions. And so, this look that Jesus had, it looks like everything you would expect God to look like if you got to see him. There's a clear communication beginning there that Yes, in fact, Jesus, God in flesh, has come to visit humanity. Well, then look at verses 3 and 4. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. I wish, uh, if you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, I'm just going to say, that's one of the strangest things to say that I can think of. Like, what do you, (laughs) Uh, I don't know what to say, so how about if I make some tents? Peter, just six days earlier, we have the marker, right? Six days earlier, had given us the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now he gives us the great confusion. I don't know what to do with Jesus who's been transformed and now who's talking with Moses and Elijah? How do I make some tents? I don't know. Peter doesn't have the imagination to comprehend what's going on. He had the same problem that you have and that I have. Now, why Moses and Elijah? I mean, there's there's lots of questions here, right? But there's Moses and there's Elijah. Why them? Well, if you know the Old Testament, you will know that it was Moses, of course, that uh, went up on the mountain and came down with two stone tablets, right, and delivered the law to the people. Moses is associated with the law. And you may remember Elijah. Elijah, who... um, had this great experience with the prophets of Baal where he called down fire on the altar and then um, he was perhaps the most famous of the prophets. And so what you have here is in, um, I suppose, in visual, what you would read about in that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You have Moses and Elijah here with Jesus, uh, indicating that Jesus is here to fulfill the law and the prophets. That the summary of this Old Testament law and prophets has now been fulfilled in Jesus. So again, it's communicating who Jesus is. And to make sure that we don't miss this, I mean, this, this is a really unusual little detail and one that I hadn't noticed before, and that is that your Old Testament, so you're, you're looking at Matthew 17, if you go back, what, 18 chapters, 
to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, it ends with Moses and Elijah. Let me read to you the end of your Old Testament. You can look back there if you want. Malachi chapter 4 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The end. The very last revelation that um, Israel had from God included Elijah and Moses, and now they are here with Jesus saying, He's the one. And so Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, God's plan for redemption. But then you'll notice something even more striking, verse 5 of uh, Matthew 17. It says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Now, I'm not sure which you would consider more striking at this moment, the cloud or the voice. But if you take a short look at the cloud, you don't get clouds like that showing up on your weather report. How does it describe it? A bright cloud. We're, we're, <laughs> we know clouds. They're the opposite of bright. It's bright until there's clouds. Here, the light was inside the cloud and it enveloped them or it overshadowed them. And so what kind of weather report covers that? There isn't one. But it is a significant detail because this cloud that is that unusual reminds us, again, of what we've seen in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is the only Bible these people would have had. The only thing, the only religion they would have known included Moses and Elijah, included the Law and the Prophets. And here you go back to this... Um, the mountain where God gave the law, it was covered in smoke. It was a, the, the, the presence of God was associated with this uh, sort of uh, covering. And then a little later, there was this pillar of cloud and fire that moved along with Israel. And in Exodus chapter 40, it says the cloud covered the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so when you read that there was this bright cloud that came in and covered them, if you're familiar at all with the law, you would go back to this tabernacle. This is the Lord's presence. That the Lord is now here. And He's now here and Jesus is His new tabernacle where He dwells. And we all must deal with Jesus as with the very presence of God Himself. Well, and then 
And then there's the voice, right? The voice has almost exactly the same language as we hear in the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. It's exactly what they would expect from the Lord. Because God on multiple occasions recommits Himself to Jesus as His Son, as the one He loves, as His plan for saving the world. Or you could say, Jesus has God's repeated endorsement that the only way to salvation is through Jesus. That Jesus is the only way God is planning to redeem a broken world. And so God announces that at His baptism. He announces it here. He announces it again in the last week of His life as He's traveling into Jerusalem. This is my beloved Son. This is my plan. I don't have plan B. And so, God's presence in the cloud affirms what this entire vision suggests, that God has visited humanity in the person of Jesus. And this beta version of the resurrection gives us a glimpse into the future so that we might know that the resurrection, in fact, is God conquering death. Well, then that brings us to the last part. And if our imagination has just not quite kept up with what we've seen so far, the shining face, the white clothes, the voice, the cloud, uh, Moses, Elijah, all of that. Our imaginations can catch up a little bit here for a second. Look at verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw no one but Jesus, they saw no one but Jesus only. And just like that, they're back where they began. They went up to the mountain to be by themselves. And now they've had all this happen, fell on their face. Jesus said, get up. They get up. It's Jesus only. They're by themselves again. They fell on their faces, it says, and they were terrified. We've seen this before. If you uh, would have read through the, the Gospel of Matthew, to get to, get to this point, you would have read about Jesus calming a storm, right? They, he's asleep in the boat. Everyone else is terrified. They wake him. He says, peace be still. The storm gets calmed. Now they're more afraid of Jesus than they are of the storm. They're terrified. Then a little bit later, there's a different storm. And they're out on, they're out on the uh, lake, and a storm comes up, but Jesus isn't there. And Jesus then walks on the water, and they freak out. It's a ghost. And they're terrified. I would be too. And then what? Then in those occasions... Jesus would chide them and say, Oh, you a little faith? Come on, boys. Don't have such little faith. He doesn't do that here, though, does he? He has just stunned them with the beauty of eternity. 
And now he doesn't chide them for their little faith. Here he comforts them. I love this part. I think there are some of us that really need to see Jesus for who he is and we need to be terrified, absolutely staggered that Jesus is not normal. He's not like you and me. He doesn't just walk around the same way we do and that's all. He is God Himself. They heard on saw all this and were terrified. Some of us need to not take Jesus for granted and be a little more terrified when we think about Him. It should scare the living daylights out of you to have an encounter with the living God. You should... Breathe a little differently when you encounter a man who cannot be contained even by death. But I think there are probably others of us in this room who don't so much need to be terrified by Jesus as we need to be comforted by Jesus. It's not just that we need to be dazzled by Jesus, but that we need to be touched by Jesus. I just think that's beautiful. He is so glorious that all they can do is fall on the ground for protection. And He is so gentle to touch them and raise them up. And really, I say some of us need to be terrified and some of us need to be comfortable. We all need both. Because your Savior is as tender as He is terrifying. He is as gentle as He is great. He is as kind as He is kingly. And I love that even though we can't really get our minds around what has just happened here, this is weird. We can't get our minds around it. Our imaginations get expanded a little bit regarding the greatness of Jesus, yet we can always come back and rest in His kindness. There's something about the disciples being afraid and so appropriately afraid, really, because of the grandeur and transcendence of this moment. And yet it only takes one touch from Jesus to calm their fears and ease their anxiety. Yes, Jesus is a transcendent God who will rule in His kingdom one day. And He touches you to comfort you. And He moves toward you. That's another detail in there that I just love. He moved toward them. And your comfort really from being overwhelmed by the transcendence of Jesus is to actually be with Jesus. And so this morning I want to invite you to trust Him. I mean to really trust Him. 
Not to trust some little fabrication that you make up of Him, but to trust Him. Because the language of this, even without all of the dazzling light show and cool cloud and all of that, the language tells us Jesus is unique. God has visited human history. And this transfiguration of Jesus gives us a peek into the glory of the resurrected Christ. It pulls back the curtain so that we have just a taste so that we want more. And it's enough of a taste, I think, that reminds us that even if the resurrection were not true, it is the story that you would wish was true. Because it does offer more. More than you can possibly imagine. And so I hope that looking at this text helps you imagine the resurrection a little bit. I mean, think about it. Yes, this was the weirdest Resurrection Sunday message ever. But it is weird to duck into a tomb and see the, the grave clothes lying there. Had the stone rolled away. you got to admit, that's not normal either. Jesus is unique. And you will want to give Him your full faith and devotion. And so it's my hope and prayer that seeing past the curtain uh, in this transfiguration will help you see enough of Jesus to trust Him. And I hope it will give you even more hope that the resurrection of Jesus paves the way for our own resurrection. In other words, everything that we hope for beyond this world is wrapped up in the unique person of Jesus. Will you trust Him today? Let's pray. Well, great God and Father, we are um, surprised, overwhelmed, off balance at what we have seen here on this mountain. But Father, history is off balance because Jesus rose from the dead. Would you give us grace today to trust Him? Father, give us grace to enjoy it. Give us grace to realize that you have been so kind to include us in the triumph of the ages that Jesus is alive from the dead. And sin and death and the grave will not win. So Father, we praise you for, for Jesus and for all that you've done through him. Amen.